and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we aim to discuss ideas that can shape a sustainable food system from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Rosa Donovan, Editor-in-Chief of the Brussels-based publication Agrifacts, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we would like to say a quick thank you to the Forum's founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the Forum's strategic partners, Cargo, The Nature Conservancy, Thought for Food, IUCN, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the World Wildlife Fund. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to the Food Systems Podcast. Discussions on the flagship European Green Deal and farm-to-fork strategy are going up a gear, particularly on the topic of sustainable food systems and what that might look like in practice. Today I'm joined by Sébastien Treillier, who is the Executive Director of IDRI, the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations since January 2019. Sébastien joined the Paris-based institute in 2010 as Director of Programmes, he is also chairman of the Scientific and Technical Committee of the French Global Environment Facility. Sebastian holds a PhD in environmental management and plays a key role in informing policy in the area of sustainable development at French and EU level. A very warm welcome to you, Sebastian. Yes, and thank you for inviting us. Uh, Idri is a Paris-based uh, <coughs> think tank on uh, uh, that tries to, to have an impact uh, on uh, international negotiations for the environment, climate, biodiversity, but also uh, Agenda 2030, and also particularly on uh, European-scale policies. And it is in this framework that uh, we have developed a study that explores uh, the possibility and the pathways for a transition at continental scale, at the EU scale, towards uh, agro, uh, agroecology for the whole food system of Europe. Now, Sebastian, you said that the transition is technically feasible and you refer there in your response to economies of scope. But what about economies of scale? Because after all, we do have to compete on the global market and the likes of Copa Cogica, the farm lobby organization based here in Brussels, would say that farmers already have very high production costs, that they already adhere to very high standards in sanitary and animal welfare domains. So how does all of this compare with, uh, or how, what does all of this mean, basically, when we're trying to compete on the world market? What's your response to that? Um, so what we've done is really to explore to what extent we could uh, design uh, a food system at the scale of Europe that would comply with biodiversity and climate objectives. And here I'm focusing on the fact that it's not just climate objectives, carbon neutrality, but also biodiversity objectives. And it is in this perspective that we have chosen to explore what agroecology at large scale would mean. And we have three findings. Uh, the first finding is to say that Agronomically, technically, it is feasible uh, to uh, transition towards uh, agroecology at the scale of the whole continent. It is possible that we uh, close the nitrogen and fertility cycles while going for an agroecological pathway and having a reasonably good climate and biodiversity impact, uh, much better on biodiversity than other scenarios. Um, and it's also uh, in this scenario we show that we uh, are still able to export cereals to the regions in needs and uh, added value products like uh, uh, in dairy or, or wine, for instance. So this is the first statement. 
The second statement is uh, a little bit taking a step back from our specific scenario. We, we've seen all scenarios that try to be carbon neutrality compatible, and particularly if you try to be also biodiversity compatible, you see that there are structural changes compared to current trends. And I want to name two of them that are particularly um, important to discuss with the food and farming sector. Uh, the first one is the necessity to re-diversify and uh, the, the, the crop systems, the crop production systems. The crop producing regions are actually currently still specializing and simplifying the landscapes. And this needs to go towards another direction of re-diversification, re-complexification. The second structural change is that uh, we need also to look at livestock systems. Uh, in all scenarios, there is a need for a reduction in the volume of livestock production, of, of the output of livestock production systems. And this is particularly concerning for the sector, of course, but this is present in all scenarios. So what we've done is try to explore, at least at the scale of France, with the sectors in dairy and cereals, how that could be compatible with some economic strategies for the, co the, the farmers, the cooperatives, and the food processing industry downstream for the whole supply chains. And so the third uh, result, looking at those structural changes, really disruptions from the current trends, is that re-complexification of uh, specializing regions with reintegration of livestock and crop systems, with the possibility also to re-diversify the crop production systems, and accepting a reduction in volume in animal production linked to an added value, so looking for value and not volume, this might be compatible with, uh, this can be compatible with some specific economic strategies in both sectors, actually leading to a 10% increase of jobs in those uh, sectors compared to the business as usual scenario where the jobs in food processing and farming are actually reducing much, much, much faster than in the reintegration scenario. Um, and, and of course, that does only function if we have specific policy conditions. So that's what the study is telling to the current policy debate in Brussels and in major capitals in, in Europe. Thank you for that, Sebastian. I wanted to pick you up on one point uh, that you made earlier, Sebastian, this increase in jobs, this 10% increase in jobs compared to business as usual. Where are those jobs going to be found? Is it in the, the high-end processing? Is it in the development of high-quality products? As you say, this investment in high-quality uh, products, perhaps for export, perhaps for the, the local markets. So where is that uh, increase in jobs going to be found? So we have tried in the, in the in our studies to look in details at the job content of um, of the food systems changes that we are <coughs> looking at, that we are exploring with these scenarios, both at the farming <coughs> in the at the, in the farming segment in the primary production and in the uh, uh, cooperative that collect food and then the processing industry. What we <coughs> have <coughs> looked at is that um, the need for workforce, both in the, uh, in the farming sector and in the process processing sector, are going to be higher in a scenario that tries to reintegrate, re-diversify crop production systems and reintegrate livestock and, uh, and, um, and vegetal production systems. So the, the demand for workforce is going to be higher. That still does not mean that there is going to be a, a reasonable and decent income for, the, for this additional workforce. What we've tried to compute with our economic modeling is that uh, given some uh, specific uh, 
types of added value that can come to the, uh, to, to, to the, to the idea that we would move up market uh, and using also the common agricultural policy, but without distorting a lot the common agricultural policy, these increasing jobs would be uh, met with uh, an increase in income. Uh, with not, I mean, um, uh, that these jobs would have a reasonable income compared to, uh, to today. So this is really the, how we've been computing that. Concretely, what that means is that uh, at the farming sector, we still have uh, more need for people to work uh, on farms uh, more than in the current trend of mechanization uh, because agroecology is based on more knowledge than, uh, than just mechanization uh, innovations. But knowledge-based innovations means qualified jobs. So we might also look at the qualification that is necessary there and how we can go in that pathway in terms of education and access to uh, capacity and knowledge for farmers. And in the food processing industry, the same thing, the added value, and this is exactly what you stated in your question, the added value uh, is other types of jobs in the food processing industries than the jobs that exist today, for instance, in slaughterhouses, where these jobs anyway are probably going to disappear because of the uh, difficulty that you face in terms of psychological living with the, the jobs in slaughterhouses. But if you want to really have jobs in the food processing industry, the current trend is a lot about mechanization. Uh, and so it's by adding specific added value in, in the processing part that you could still retain some of the jobs there. This is extremely important for a region like Brittany in France, where you see that a lot of the jobs that we have in Brittany are in the food processing industry and not just in the farming sector, uh, in mass production of Emmental cheese or ham. But this mass production is also uh, mechanizing, mechanizing sorry, with lots of uh, replacement of jobs by machines. And if you really want to retain jobs in Brittany, you probably need to move up market also just to have uh, some specific jobs in more added value processing than just mass mechanized uh, food processing chains. Perfect. Thank you for that, Sebastian. Just to pick you up on a point that you made there about knowledge-based jobs. So evidently the shift, this paradigm shift towards agroecology, as espoused by your institute, there would be, I would imagine, a huge investment in technology and innovation. But what specific technological tools are you referring to? What sort of tools would have to be, come on stream to make this shift possible? So the, 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 the type of biodiversity positive and climate positive agriculture that we are exploring in this scenario is really uh, um, based on the idea to put more ecology, to put back more ecological thinking into agronomic practices and looking at innovation at the scale of the whole agroecosystem. So innovations in the organization of the agricultural landscape, in the practice, in the systems of practices. And so not only looking at for instance, um, the improvement of one specific seed or one specific breed of animals, but looking at uh, the innovation at the scale of the whole organization of the ecosystem. This is going to be extremely knowledge intensive and will probably necessitate in, in order to really manage those agroecosystems at the highest environmental and economic and social performance levels, a lot of data processing. So a lot of uh, artificial intelligence, a lot of uh, data processing. I'm also referring to the possibility to use metagenomics to try and understand the whole ecosystem and how we could pilot it. Uh, and more concretely, if you think of uh, what type of technologies are, are necessary, I, I can imagine, and we already have uh, uh, examples of that, that this also needs a lot of robotization in the way that we are able to, uh, to uh, specifically target some specific parts of the ecosystem to 
to for, for intervention. So this is not exclusive of what has been uh, supported in terms of uh, very technological, um, what we call in French agriculture raisonnée, the idea that we would really reduce the, uh, the, the, the way we apply inputs to the very necessary uh, drops of uh, active products in terms of fertilization of pesticides. These types of very specialized mechanized tools would be also very useful for an agroecological pathway. But really, I believe that what needs to be, uh, what, what the types of innovations that are going to be extremely necessary might be more knowledge intensive than capital intensive. And this is also something we need to consider. A lot of the farmers are now uh, facing a lot of debt uh, and probably uh, what the type of uh, innovation pathway that we might be looking at is less capital intensive. And we, we should not necessarily try to help farmers invest more in more physical capital, in more technologies, because they already have a lot of debt. If we are to move to a carbon neutral agricultural system, I guess there's an assumption there, Sebastian, indeed a requirement that we shift towards a more plant-based diet with less consumption of animal proteins. That's the understanding, I guess, if we're supposed to reach zero carbon by 2050. That's the direction of travel we're taking. Exactly. One of the key, very difficult structural changes that we need to address uh, in, at, the, at the whole European scale is that if we want to comply and we need to comply with the carbon neutrality objective, if we are consistent with what the scientific scientists of IPCC are telling us, if, and so if we want and need, because we need to be consistent with that objective to be carbon neutral, no, 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 there, I don't know of any scenario that does not really reduce the level of uh, livestock production output uh, at the scale of the whole continent and reducing also the, the share of animal proteins in the type in the total amount of protein that we have in our diets on the whole i think for europe we have an excess uh, in proteins in our diets so the idea would be to both reduce the overall uh, the overall calorie intake but also the overall protein intake and rebalance the share to have more plant protein than, than animal protein in our diets. This is also very consistent with the idea that these protein, vegetal protein that we would have in our, in our plates also are useful at the farm level because these are the pulses and legumes that are able to fixate the nitrogen for the atmosphere and thus reduce the necessity to use uh, nitrogen fertilizers. So this, as, a, as a, just to, to, to come back to your question, this is exactly what makes the necessity for the livestock sector to face the necessity at some point that the agricultural output in the, in the dairy sector, in the red meat sector, but also in the pigs and poultry sector, will need at some point to reduce. So how we organize that towards 2050, that we have a strategy to move up market in those sectors uh, in the, uh, for the farmers, but also if we seek a possibility that the same farmers or the same supply chains are also involved in the plant protein industry, that would be a kind of a substitution of their supply chain. And taking all of this on board, Sebastian, do you think Europe, the European Union, is on the right track then with its much acclaimed farm-to-fork strategy as an approach to food systems transformation? So what, what I see in the farm-to-fork strategy is uh, at least two very important points in the, in, the, in the triggering of the transformation that I'm talking about. The first one is to set clear, uh, important targets, mid-term and long-term, about both climate protection and biodiversity protection. And when I say biodiversity protection, I'm not just talking about the value, the intrinsic value of biodiversity, which is also very important, but I'm also talking about 
biodiversity as a factor of production for agriculture and biodiversity of, uh, as a as a good indicator of the quality of our waters, uh, the waters from which we drink in our cities. So there is a whole link between biodiversity and a lot of other objectives that are very important for the whole economy of the continent. Uh, so if we want to be, what, what I like in the Farm to Fork strategy is that it sets very important science-based targets uh, for uh, protection of climate and biodiversity. And, and uh, the second point that I like in the Farm to Fork strategy is that it pushes us now to discuss at the scale of the whole food system and not just looking at farmers alone, but also with the food processing industry and the consumers and the retailers, but also the input industry upstream, all the food system, looking at what would be the pathways to get there. And when I say pathways, again, I'm stating the fact that to me, pathways are made necessarily of both possible changes in the economic strategies of the supply chains, how they see the future between economies of scale and economies of scope, the discussion that we just had with you, and also, on the other hand, of course, the policies that are necessary to make those pathways possible. And this is why I think that the farm to fork strategy is really positioning the problem and the policy discussions at the right scale. And speaking of policy conditions then, Sebastian, which policy conditions are necessary to forge ahead with this new direction of travel that you're sort of supporting here? So at least I could name three areas of policies that are extremely important. Uh, I would begin by the idea of a food policy. Uh, and by a food policy, uh, I believe I'm also referring to the fact that there has been a long debate in Brussels about should we not rename the common agricultural policy and reframe it as a common food policy with lots of interesting suggestions about that. And the farm to fork to me is already the beginning of that. What that means a food policy is really to look at the fact that we have tools at the European scale, at national scale, but also at local authorities level to orientate both the diets uh, that, we, that we have, the way that the public food purchase is also changing both our diets, educating children in schools about what are the diets of the future that are going to be good for nutritional purposes and good for the environment, but also that have a, a retro, um, a retro uh, feedback loop, a positive feedback loop on what, are, what the farmers are, are, are farming. So the idea that we have tools at the, very, uh, cons at the consumer level uh, in terms of uh, food policy is extremely important. I can also name uh, the idea of um, um, of a food labeling on environmental uh, information to consumers, which we have been exper experimenting currently in, in France, with interesting results to be taken up to Brussels. Uh, it's, it's also a, a longer-term conversation that has begun already at the beginning of the years 2000, 2010. But uh, I think we are progressing in that area that the food side, the food consuming side of the policy is something that we can address jointly. And that involves, of course, not just DG Agri, DG Environment, but also DG Sanko. So this is a whole food system policy that needs to be put in place. I, I was insisting a lot on that part because that's the part that is generally forgotten and that I think we need to focus quite a lot on. But of course, there is also the idea of a trade policy and how to align the EU trade policy with the objectives of the Farm to Fork is going to be extremely important. We've seen that there, has been, there have been shifts in the way uh, the, the trade policy is looked at both from member states level, and I'm actually referring more uh, to the discussion on carbon border tax adjustments uh, that, that, have been, uh, uh, that have been discussed on other sectors than the food sector, where we saw changes in the discussion between, for instance, uh, Netherlands and France. 
France generally being considered to be the protectionist state and Netherlands being the free trade state. And they have been changing respectively their positions to find a new way to put sustainable development as an objective of the trade policy rather than uh, a kind of an adjustment part of the trade policy. So these changes might lead to the possibility that we define a trade policy that supports the transformation of our food system towards uh, sustainability, climate and, and biodiversity positive, while at the same time not preventing African countries or other countries to reach sustainable development themselves. Sure, and picking you up on that, uh, the national strategic plans are obviously work in progress at the moment with the deadline of December 31st. But interestingly, Sebastian, a couple of weeks ago, we actually interviewed Emile Frisson from the International Panel of Experts in Sustainable Food Systems, and he also spoke about this idea of replacing the sectoral policies, the current sectoral policies, with a food systems policy. And that's something that you seem to support as well in your last response. Yes, definitely. I think we we are just at the beginning of a discussion of what a food policy would look like at the scale of the whole European Union. I, I, let me just take a step back by saying that the common we are we are both looking at food systems at, and and I would say at the, at Europe itself. Uh, the common agricultural policy was a pillar of the establishment of Europe as a project for its member states. And we are in a current moment where the Green Deal is also a way to try and reinstall a kind of a confidence of member states and their citizens towards the European Union project. Um, and I believe that food is a key element. Food is identity. Food is very diverse, but also very central to many of the identities that make Europe that is not homogeneous, that is diverse. And at the same time, we have things in common. So I would really insist on the, on the fact that if I look at the at the, at the European project as, as something I want to preserve as a European uh, convinced citizen, I would insist that food is the new CAP. The food policy is the new uh, element, the mortar that will help cement uh, our European project as citizens. If we want to do that, I think we're just at the beginning of the pathway to discuss what that entails. I've been discussing about, I've been, I've been just giving examples about food labeling as a, as a policy tool that is currently discussed. I've been discussing about uh, we could discuss about the norms and standards of what is nutritionally positive. We could discuss about the, the public purchasing criteria and how that could be made compatible with the European competition to favor uh, more uh, environmentally ambitious uh, ways of production. But I would also insist on some part of the policy that is often not the one that is really considered as, as a very important. And, and I'm insisting on the policies that could orientate the food processing industry towards those economies of scope and diversity-oriented uh, strategies that I've been mentioning before. Currently, the food processing industry is a globalized industry, very much uh, put under pressure by the strategies of massification, standardization, and economies of scale. And I would insist on the fact that we need to also find a way for policies to try and push those uh, uh, food industries to explore the economies of uh, the economies of scope, the synergies of those types of uh, uh, regional scale biomass uh, uh, based uh, economies, where what you what you uh, valorize more are the synergies between a diversity of food supply of, 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 of food supply chains and types of biomass, and that I think we need to look at. What is the, 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 the for instance, the, the new product formulation in, in the food industry? 
just let me uh, uh, explain a little bit what I mean by that. Uh, um, very often in the food industry today, uh, the added value is coming from the fact that you add uh, a processing uh, stage to uh, the already quite long processing stages that you might have, looking for more value by adding more uh, technological processing or new stage in processing. In many of the industries, what you have is uh, first that you take the raw materials from the farm and you disaggregate them in elemental, uh, in, in very, uh, um, I would say, uh, elemental elements. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking for my words. And then re-aggregate re them to make the added value coming from that re-aggregation process. And that concentrates the added value creation at the downstream part of the food supply chain. That this is the type of uh, uh, organization of work, the division of work between this uh, disaggregation versus reaggregation part of the food industry that leads to ultra-processed food where the, the, the consumer cannot make the link between what, what he eats or she eats and what, what has been produced by the farmers. And we have some reasonable indications in statistical terms that these ultra-processed foods are not compatible with a nutritionally sound diet. Uh, and, and, and that probably needs more explanation on causation than just correlation, but this is an indication that I found interesting. So reconnecting raw materials and consumers is something that we need to look for. And speaking about the role of consumers there, this idea that um, consumers obviously play a massive role in this debate, but how are we going to ensure buy-in from the general public when a lot of the time consumers are guided by simpler factors such as price and convenience this is a key a key problem to which I'm not I don't necessarily have an answer one answer that I first want to, to have is on the issue of price uh, on price uh, it is true that uh, we the, the, the European citizens and the general consumers are, are struggling with increases in prices in many other areas than just food but also uh, they are fearing that food might become uh, more expensive. Uh, until very recently, uh, the uh, access to food has been ensured in Europe by the fact, I, I would say by the competition policy in Europe, that will ensure that the price uh, for, for end consumers was on a downward trend for decades. And I think a lot of the farmers are telling us, even without looking at the environmental discussion that we have had before, that this downward trend in the prices to consumers of the food is just incompatible with their economic viability. So at some point, this will have to stop. And we cannot ensure well-being of consumers by just having this downward trade in prices. Because this was also uh, linked to uh, not just uh, food security, because it was not nutritionally secure. The type of food that people were able to access was cheap, empty calories. So we need to probably have a, 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 another type of look at what it means to access nutritionally sound food. And if you look at that, then the current trend is not sustainable at all, not viable, you know, I mean, in terms of health and economy, not looking at environmental issues, uh, not even looking at environmental issues. So in that regard, what we have been exploring, for instance, with the Citizens' Convention on Climate in France, the citizens have been saying, we understand that the farmers... Uh, if, they, if we want them to be more sustainable economically and more sustainable environmentally, then they probably we need to stop that downward trend on, on, on food prices. Uh, and, and so that means that given that there is a, a large part of the European population that is economically very vulnerable, we need to reinstall another type of uh, um, social security for food. 
Uh, and that was a general concept that we have not explored. But I think this is not just about food stamps with the uh, uh, US examples, but we probably need to also look at the whole issue of redistribution of income and social aid uh, so that it's not through a, a, a lower retribution of farmers that we are going to ensure that consumers access nutritionally sound food. I think that equation of lowering the prices to ensure access to food does not function, even for economic purposes. So this is where I believe we need to open up the conversation that is actually already ongoing on uh, the issue of housing and transportation, looking at the Food for 55 package. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking again a step back from the food sector to look at the whole Green Deal discussion in Brussels. We see that on transportation and housing, if those enter the ETS system, that might make higher prices for fuel in cars and in house uh, uh, and in housing and that then the commission is proposing a social climate fund we at idri advocate for the fact that we need to look at a whole discussion on the social dimension of the transition that we are looking at and that we reopen much more the discussion at both europe scale and national scale about the social transition means that we have and states in europe are we are i mean we are mostly all uh, uh, how, would you, how, we, how would you call that uh, social democracies of market, uh, social market democracies? I think that's uh, the wording that I could use. And we have states where we have social security, but at very different levels across member states. And food is part of the discussion, but we should not rely on the pre-existing downward trend in prices to ensure food and nutrition security. Final question, Sebastian, which is actually the same that we ask of everyone on this podcast. Could you give us one concrete policy or a practical idea to create a more sustainable food system? So my choice would really be to look at how we use the recovery plans, all the investment plans that are currently existing. And I hope that they would be re, re, uh, reopened, that we have a reopened discussion on next generation EU, this instrument for recovery, and how those recovery instruments are targeted at the right type of investments that are needed for the supply chains, both in the processing industry and in the other farming sector level. And again, I insist, it might be that what we need is not so much capital intensive, so that the investments are more important in the way that they enable transition than about being massive investments in high capital technologies. So this is something where my discussion that I want to install is, to what extent are we really agreeing on the type of investments that are needed? Investments are needed, but can we orientate them towards that diversification change that is at the heart of the structural changes that is needed? Sebastian Trier, Executive Director of IDRI, the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations. Thank you very much indeed for joining Food Systems today. And for those of you interested who would like to follow up on any of the topics raised by Sebastian, I would encourage you to go to the website www.idri.org. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Feel free to come back to us in two weeks' time when we release our latest episode. In the meantime, you can of course subscribe on your preferred podcast app and check us out on Twitter at Forum for Ag for updates, news, as well as the latest on forum events. Check out our website www.forumforagriculture.com for more great content. Until the next time, take care.